All right, ladies and germs, Chris again, uh, coming at you with another solo podcast, picking up where I left off. So, uh, so we talked, you know, about religion and, um, the conversation, you know, it's, it's going to get weirder. So strap in for that. I mean, there's today, you know, what I want to focus on is, is consciousness. I want to talk about consciousness and I'm going to talk about it a lot. And in the, in the future, I'm going to talk about it in the context of um, physics. So there's a lot of interesting, uh, interesting topics in physics, like uh, you know, superposition, entanglement. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that are unexplained. That um, talking about consciousness in the way that I'm going to, which is really in a kind of in a religious way. Um, it's gonna, it's gonna all kind of come together and in a very interesting way, in a way that's hard to talk about, for a couple reasons. I mean, when we talk about consciousness, that that's a little bit of a hippy dippy thing, uh, kind of on the surface. And when we're talking about physics, especially quantum physics, you know, if you've done any research on that at all, you know what I mean. It's it's really really hard to talk about. And I don't know if, I don't know if this has to do with. Um, I have a lot yet to learn, you know, if it has to do with, I don't, I don't understand it well enough, or I don't have the, the language down well enough to, to talk in a way that makes sense about it, you know, that could be, um, or if it's just, it's a hippy dippy thing, it's, it's something that, uh, to talk about is not easy because the language doesn't really exist to talk about it. And you kind of have to talk around it, talk in analogies, things like that. And I'll do a lot of that, and I have already. I'll, I'll talk, you know, talking analogies, just in my way of of trying to make sense of it. So bear with me. I'm doing. Um, I'm thinking out loud is really what I'm doing. So, so I think I think maybe a good place to start is just to recap where we left off. You know, in the first solo podcast, I talked about my interest in religion. In the second one, I, I kind of focused more on um, putting a little bit of a seed of doubt in each of your minds, that when we take for granted reality, the way that things appear to us, um, that when we take that for granted, that we we might actually be missing something, and maybe even something ultimately important. So, so in the last solo podcast, we talked about reality and perception and all that sort of thing, and how the way the world really is, it's not, it's not fully captured by our experiences and our perceptions, that there are things going on in the world around us all the time and in our own bodies and, and minds that we, we aren't aware of. There's things going on that we either we're not conscious of, we're not aware of, um, or they're happening on some other level that is impossible for us to experience. Like you, we don't know what our cells are experiencing. We don't know what, you know, what the parasites in our, in our belly are experiencing, that kind of thing. It's just too distant for us to know. Um, so, so we'll build on that. I mean, reality is more than it seems to be. It's more than what we can kind of, uh, be aware of. The, um, the other thing we talked about a little bit in the last episode was, uh, was Descartes and, and Descartes saying, I think therefore I am. So when I, when I mentioned that the last time I talked about that, like, you know, Descartes trying to figure out what the bedrock of reality is. So he's sitting there doubting everything he can doubt. And it turns out to be basically everything that he can doubt. But what he couldn't doubt was the fact that he was sitting there thinking. And so he said uh, those famous words, I think, therefore I am. I cannot doubt that I'm thinking. 
So kind of what that does, though, is it puts the, the thinker um, or the, the part of you that's thinking, I'm going to call that consciousness, it's going to put that somehow as the bedrock or the foundation of reality. So the question really is, it's, it's a good one. You know, how in the world can consciousness be the bedrock of reality? So, you know, this is going to take some, this is going to take some analyzing uh, what we mean by those words, what we mean by consciousness, what we mean by reality, what we mean by God, you know, those sorts of things. And some of that will be more difficult for others to kind of, to kind of go with, uh, but, but bear with me. I think it's important to understand that, that consciousness is more than this sort of ego awareness that we have, the, the part of ourselves that we kind of identify with. Um, you know, when we look in the mirror and we see our faces, we, we sort of identify with that image with the thing that makes our decisions, the thing that evaluates the world. Um, that's the thing that we call uh, ourself. That's us. But in truth, consciousness is more than that. In fact, we are more than that. Uh, much more. Uh, that's something that Jordan Peterson said once that, that really struck me as powerful, and I'll, hopefully I won't butcher the quote, but he says something like, um, we are more than we can imagine by a tremendous margin. So the part of ourselves that we that we don't identify with is great and vast, maybe the greatest thing that there is, maybe infinite and limitless, um, maybe God. And so that's kind of what I want to get to today. All right, so where do we go next here? Um, how about this? Let's let's go back to Descartes for a second. Um, how can consciousness be the bedrock of reality? So how how might that how might that be possible? Seems a little bit out there. Uh, the reason I think is because we consider ourselves to kind of own um, our consciousness. That's the one thing that we are. Um, so. So how can how can that be the bedrock of reality beyond myself? Like how how can my consciousness be what the bedrock of reality for for everyone? And that's kind of the question I'm asking. It's kind of a strange question. Um, so the bedrock of reality. Let's let's stop on that phrase for a second. So when Descartes says that, I think what he means is God. But of course that that's not going to go over well to everyone listening, depending on what you think about God or how you make sense of that idea. I think what Descartes did, though, was he said, whatever it is that makes reality possible, that's what God is. So I'm not going to go any further than that. I'm just going to say, you know, if it's possible for there to be existence, uh, whatever it is that makes that possible, uh, we're going to call that God. So I think that's what we're looking at here. When, when Descartes says the bedrock of reality, what he means is God. And what he's saying is, when he says, I think, therefore I am, he's saying that my consciousness is the bedrock of reality. So consciousness equals God, something like that. Um, again, the weirdness of that comes from the idea that I'm just me, and there are other people out there. So even if my consciousness was uh, somehow the bedrock of reality for me, how do I extend that to everybody else? You know, it seems like I'm detached from them somehow. So how, how can I extend that to everyone else, everyone who's ever lived before me, all of the cosmos and space and time? How can I extend my consciousness to all of that? It's kind of a hard, kind of a hard thing to do. 
it's, I think it's our modesty even. Um, it, I think it's our modesty that holds us back from that. At least that's part of it. All right, so, so Descartes says the bedrock of reality, I think by that he means God, and he equates that with consciousness. And how this might be true is it's, it's not really that difficult. So let's, let's do a little, another little thought experiment together. Imagine material reality, the cosmos, all the things around us, space and time and all the objects that are there. Imagine that as experience. And that may seem weird off the, off the surface, but just give it a couple, a couple seconds here and you'll understand. Everything that you experience in the world, all the things that you think are real, the, the objects you encounter, the people you meet, the experiences you have, all of the things that are happening in the world, um, all of that stuff is part of our experience. And once those, once the experience is done, all we have left of that is like our memory of the experience. So the experience is gone. The point I'm making is where, where does reality exist? You know, the things I'm experiencing, the things I'm touching, the things I'm interacting with, the space I'm walking, you know, walking around the block, let's say, walking the dog. Um, all of that stuff is happening in my experience. It's in my, it's in my mind somehow. So I, I don't want to necessarily um, diminish the idea that I can reach out and touch it and I know those things are there because my senses tell me that they're there. That's all fine and good. But all of that sensation, when I touch something, taste something, smell something, th those things are happening in my mind, in, in my psyche, you might say. Um, so it was something like this. Like there isn't really a certain flavor to a piece of bread and butter, let's say. That flavor is happening in my mind. And it has something to do with, you know, my taste buds and the electrical impulses that go from my mouth to my brain and all that sort of stuff. Um, fine and good. But the point is that the, the taste is not in the world. It's in, it's in my experience. It's in my mind. The question is, how much of what, what we experience, how much of reality is, is like that? How much of it's really just happening in our minds? All of this subjective stuff, you know, the way things look and feel and seem, even stuff like um, what makes us angry, what makes us uh, surprised, what makes us scared, you know, all of the stuff that we that, like that, that describes the world, all that stuff happens in our, in our minds. You know, it's like, uh, you know, like a scary Halloween costume or something like you, you take that out of context and you stick it down in front of a, somebody who's never heard of Halloween or, or, uh, you know, vampires or whatever you, you put that scary image in front of them. They're not going to be afraid of it at all. It's, it might be something weird. It might be something they don't understand, but the fear is not there. It's the fear is something that's unique to each of us and it's exists only in our, in our minds. So, so this is what I'm getting at is if material reality is only the experience that we're having, if it exists only in our, in our minds, wouldn't that, wouldn't that kind of make sense from what Descartes said? If, if consciousness is God, right? then everything is happening in consciousness. Everything is happening somehow in our psyche, in our mind, let's say. Um, and I don't, I don't want to necessarily sit here and... and uh, I don't want to avoid the contradiction because people do talk about mind or psyche, let's say, 
and brain as though they're the same. Um, that's something that that's something that it's a kind of a pet peeve of mine listening to uh, listening to, to Joe Rogan's podcast is he makes that mistake over and over and over talking about uh, the f- a functioning brain as though it's a mind. Those things are not necessarily the same. Uh, there's been lots of words people use. You know, I've, I've said psyche a few times, but in the old days they would say spirit. You know, so that's that's something that's, um, you know, it's it's not identified uh, with our body. It's that whole mind body uh, thing. It's separate. Um, so let's come at this from a different angle. Um, so so again, just kind of allow yourself to consider that everything you've ever experienced. Um, you know, everything you've ever done, everyone you've ever known, all of that stuff, the whole story of your life from your birth to the present moment, all that stuff exists in your mind and probably in the minds of other people who have interacted with you in little bits and pieces. Um, imagine if that's kind of all there is to it. If, if material reality really is just an experience, I know it's kind of weird, but we'll, we'll kind of keep digging in on this. Um, so I, I, I kind of made the point here that um, our whole lives, the things that we think of as, let's say, the world, all of, all of that exists as an experience it's in, within our consciousness. And it brings me to uh, kind of an age-old question. And you've heard this before, but I'll, I'll ask you just for the purposes of uh, making the argument. Uh, that if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody around, did it make a sound? So it's an interesting question. I don't know how you might have answered that before or how much you even thought about it. But the idea here is, I mean, clearly, we know from, from physics, if something falls, something heavy falls and it hits the ground, that it's going to do certain things. It's going to reverberate. It's going to make a noise. That energy is going to change form and become the bang that you hear, the, you know, all of that sort of thing. That, that, that all exists. I'm not denying that that wouldn't happen. What I'm asking, though, is would it make a sound if there's nobody there to hear it? And the question that really is being asked here is where does that sound exist? Does it exist in the world or does it exist in consciousness? And this, I think, is the question. It's a very important question because really there might not be a more important question because what, what we're really asking here is if the world exists in consciousness and you and I and everyone listening right now are conscious creatures, it really becomes more and more difficult to separate ourselves from this idea of God. Now, I'm not talking about the idea of God that you may have in your mind right now. I'm talking about the idea that I explained from like a, a Descartes perspective, that the bedrock of reality you know, the, the source and structure from which all of reality is built on, whatever that thing is that makes it possible, that's God. Now, if that's consciousness, and you and I and everyone listening are conscious, what does that say about us? Now, I don't know the answer to that question, but it seems like you'd be hard-pressed hard to find a more important question to know the answer to. All right, so if experience is material reality, um, this is something that I've called being, um, and I'm going to continue to do that. So I made a distinction in the last solo podcast about uh, being and non-being, and I was talking about the opposites, 
and kind of what, you know, we know what being is, but what, what might non-being be if it's the opposite of being, that, that kind of a thing. And so what I was saying here is that being really is the world as we experience it. It's the world of our perceptions, the only world we really know. And then non-being is just this unknown part of ourselves. Uh, non-being is something that's not like being at all. So it's something that we might suggest exists, but we don't really know anything about it. Maybe we can't know anything about it. It's the, the unconscious, let's say. So thinking about these opposites again, like being and non-being, um, it kind of brings me full circle to uh, that psychedelics episode that Kyle and I uh, put on, is that in that mystic experience um, that you can achieve through religious rituals, but in, you know, we talked a lot about it from the perspective of psychedelics, that, that's, that that mystic experience is possible. And when you have it, one of the things that you cannot deny, one of the most powerful parts of that experience, is unifying those opposites. So it's, it's not just th- seeing things as though they're one. It's experiencing things, when I say that, I guess I mean the world or being. You're experiencing all the things you experience as, as indistinct from yourself. So the idea is that you do literally become one with the universe. It's not just you and everything else. It's everything together all at once. So what I'm getting at here is in the mystic experience, in that religious experience, the most powerful thing that you feel is that being and non-being are one thing. And that one thing is the same thing as you. It's it's very difficult to deny um, the existence of non-being or something that we might call God because you, in that mystic experience, you you sort of became God. Um, So we talked about that a little bit before. Um, and where this leads me to is, is probably the first time that I heard Dr. Jordan Peterson do a lecture. Um, it was his biblical series, I believe it was. And he was talking about this idea of opposites um, in, in a similar way, but he was talking about a very specific kind. Um, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but what I want to mention first is that when we're talking about opposites, like something like hot and cold... It's possible for you to say that that kind of like incorporates or encompasses all the possible ways something can be, um, all the possible all the possible ways uh, something might be a particular temperature. Let's say, so it's the whole range from from hot to cold and everything in between. It enc- it encompasses the whole spectrum of 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 that. But it doesn't. It, that example doesn't encompass the whole world. It only encompasses this one little part of it. You know, these opposites are the full range of temperature. Okay, I get that. But what Jordan Peterson did was he talked about the idea of these uniting of the opposites in an all-encompassing way. It's like there are examples of opposites that when when you take them together, there's nothing left out. They encompass everything. So one of the ways of doing that is to talk about chaos and order. And you might think of the world uh, or reality as divided up between those two things, that everything fits either in the category of chaos or the category of order. And if you think about that, you'll, you know, you, it's, it's kind of um, quick enough to figure that, the, the certainty of that out. You know, you, you allow a couple examples to flow through your mind and you'll see they're either chaos or they're order. 
And I'll put it in a different way. Um, it could also be the known versus its opposite, the unknown. And all things are either known or unknown. Or another one, uh, culture versus nature. So everything in your experience, everything, is either culture or it's nature. There's nothing that falls outside of that spectrum. Another one, and maybe the last one we'll talk about, is explored territory versus unexplored territory. So everything is either the known or unknown, the explored or the unexplored. There's nothing outside of that. It's fully all-encompassing. You might also say um, something like actuality versus its opposite, um, potentiality, right? So everything is either the potential for, for something to be or something that already is, actuality versus potentiality. So all of these examples... Um, we might actually be talking about the same thing with these examples. I th kind of think that's true. But these are examples that do sort of encompass everything. There's nothing that gets left out. So when we think about joining, the, joining these opposites, when we're thinking about God as, as kind of the, the combination of these, this something that encompasses all things, there's nothing left out of it. It's everything. It's the only thing. That, that's kind of the way I would think about God. So God would be chaos and order together, the known and the unknown together, the explored and unexplored territory together, potential and actual together, that sort of thing. Um, so when Jordan Peterson talks about that in his lectures, his biblical lectures, um, it's really interesting because he talks about this going way back to like, you know, ancient Sumerian, ancient Babylonian myths, and talking about, um, you know, like most classical religions, they, they kind of have a, uh, you know, they have a father and a mother god or goddess, and they kind of work as a, as a pair. Um, sometimes they're consorts like husband and wife, sometimes not. Um, usually it's like a father sky, um, mother earth type of a combination, or, um, you know, heaven, uh, Uranus in, in the Greek religion versus earth or Gaia. So there's always something like that, where it's kind of like a, a feminine and a masculine type of a uh, type of example. Um, and by the way, that's another that's another dichotomy, feminine and masculine, that would fit this, the same categories. So there's everything in, in your in your world is gonna is gonna fall into one of those two categories. Let's say, um, uh, and it also corresponds to the um, to this the the psychology that I love so much. You know, coming from uh, from Carl Jung, um, the you know conscious and the unconscious. That those are also categories like that, that everything you experience is either conscious or unconscious. There's nothing that falls outside of it. Um, and when Jordan Peterson does this, when he goes through it, you know, for me, it made sense in a way that, and I've been struggling with this, trying to understand religion and God and all that for my whole life, but it was put in a way that had never been, been put before. And I think maybe because Jordan is a psychologist, it, it made it more practical, it made it more relatable because of his experience with just how the human mind works and the way he put it. Um, and it made religion interesting to me for the first time. Um, well, not, not religion, I should say, but maybe, so maybe the religion I was born into, so the, so the Christian faith, it made that interesting for me for the first time in a very long time. It also put another dynamic on all of the other religious studies that I've done uh, to make that stuff even more interesting to me. 
So it's, it, you know, having the experience of kind of him explaining this stuff from his perspective has sort of lit a fire in me. And maybe it's, maybe it's responsible for why I'm on this podcast today, if I'm being honest. Um, but to give you an example, um, Jordan Peterson will say things like um, consciousness, and you can just sort of consider yourself as, as what I mean when I say consciousness, the c- conscious creature, that you, um, that what you do is that you, you encounter chaos in the world, and then you have the opportunity to harvest from that experience something of value. So you might say that, um, you might say that you, um, you know, you had a bad, uh, a bad relationship or even better. Let's say you had a, a job that you were working for years and that, uh, you got fired, let's say, um, and that gave you an opportunity to reflect on why you got fired. It, it made you kind of face the idea that, yeah, you know, I guess I didn't take things all that seriously. I guess I was late, you know, all the time. I guess I, you know, uh, didn't have patience for the boss anymore. So it, it does whenever you encounter, something like that, whenever you encounter the chaos, whenever you find yourself in the unexplored territory, um, that it gives you an opportunity to grow and to transform, um, you know, yourself. So this is kind of the way that he, he will, he'll describe people's encounter with the unknown or the unconscious or, or chaos, whatever word, pick a word, whatever word you want to use. I like them all. Um, and he describes the biblical stories um, at great length. And if you haven't listened to it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Anybody who's, who lives in the first world, uh, who has a Christian upbringing or, 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 you know, whatever it is, but has fallen away from uh, religion because you feel like it's a bunch of hokum, that it's uh, a bunch of st- stories that are ancient, that, that don't have any meaning or applicability to the world anymore, or the stories are only there to help people control other people. If you think those things, go listen to Jordan Peterson's biblical lectures. Do that. Give it about, you know, uh, uh, listen to them all. Give it a couple of days. I, if you don't change your mind, I will be, I will be so surprised. I can't even tell you. Um, cause it, it did that for me. And I just, I can't imagine how it, how it wouldn't for, for each of you. Anyway, he talks about these biblical stories like this. So he's talking about, you know, imagine, you know, Adam, Adam and Eve and the, and the snake. So the encounter of Adam and Eve with the snake is an encounter with, uh, with chaos. It's an encounter with the unknown. Um, that when they have that encounter, you know, it's a dangerous thing. It's full of opportunity, but it's always a dangerous thing. And, um, and, and, and so you can see that example with them in the snake, but you can also see that same example with Noah and the flood. You know, the flood the world destroying flood. I mean, what, that's the great unknown. Uh, you know, if, if, if I've ever heard of it, that's, that's the great unknown. Another interesting thing there is that Carl Jung and all these, um, these, uh, psychoanalysts will say from the perspective of like interpreting dreams, that water almost always is a symbol for the unconscious. So in the story of Noah, you've got this man who's who the world is destroyed by the unconscious, uh, by, by this flood. Um, and then he has an opportunity, uh, once he's encountered that flood, to, uh, to start anew. And you see the same thing with Moses going into the wilderness. You see the same thing with, with Jesus uh, you know, facing sort of inescapable suffering and death, that anybody who's encountering um, this idea, this, this chaos, this unknown, 
that you have an opportunity to face it bravely and to find in those experiences something valuable. And Jordan Peterson will always use the example of, um, you know, like that, that chivalrous sort of knight story where, where the knight in shining armor goes and, and slays the dragon and, and saves the maiden, let's say, and that what he's done, he, he's the hero, he's, he's the conscious person. He's facing the unconscious, he's facing the dragon. There's a lot of danger there, there's potential for danger and destruction, but he faces it volunteer, voluntarily and bravely. And he, what he gets from that is is that that valuable thing. In this case, the you know the maiden, the virgin that he gets. So these stories, these stories are everywhere in our in our culture, and they go back to the very beginning of time. And they're all dressed up in all these different ways, you know, different names, different images, um, different cultures, different languages. And so it's hard for people to consider them as you know some kind of a continuum, or consider them as the same story that we have, but just in this other packaging. And that's what it is. You know, those stories exist all over the place, everywhere, all across time, and they're not going anywhere. We're, we're producing those same stories, you know, 10 at a time in Hollywood and Bollywood, all over the place. Just every time we're, we release a new book, a new movie, we're telling the same story over and over and over again. All right. So I want to get a little bit weirder with you now. Um, we talked about um, we talked about the world and how we only we only encounter the world through our through our minds, through our experiences. And our experiences aren't something that happen in the world. They're something that happen in our psyche. So there's not really a way for us to know what is really in the world. And that's something that we said uh, on the last solo podcast is, you know, whatever it is behind our perceptions, whatever the world really is behind our perceptions, that's something that's completely unknown to us. We don't know what that is. So maybe, maybe I look at a tree and there's really a tree there. Maybe it doesn't look like it, I think it looks, but there's really a tree there. There's really a stream behind the tree. There's really, a, uh, you know, um, a flock of turkeys running across the, the you know, the, um, the forest there. All that stuff maybe behind my perceptions there's really something like that that I can reach out and touch. But maybe not. Maybe I look at the tree, and what's behind that tree is God. And when I look at the stream, what's really behind that perception of a stream is God. And the turkey running across the field there that I'm seeing, behind, behind that perception, maybe that's also God. And maybe the, maybe the thing that's looking out through my eyes observing all of that, maybe that's also God. So this is the kind of hippie that I'm talking about now. So imagine... That your experience, that thing that I'm calling being, you know, the world of your experience. Imagine if that is not is not just consciousness, but imagine if that that is self consciousness. It's not just it's not just a, your awareness. It's something more than that. Okay, so going back to the mystic experience, what that sort of religious experience tells you, again, is that the world is all one. There's only one thing. Uh, you become one with the universe, and so you realize that, that everything is just one thing. Well, that's kind of, that kind of puts a monkey wrench in this idea of self-consciousness, right? If, if, there, if there's only one thing, you know, I would call that God, but let's call that consciousness for the sake of argument. If, if there's only one, th- one thing, and that thing is consciousness, what, what does consciousness have to be conscious of? Of. 
It's the only thing that exists. There aren't anything else. It's just consciousness. Consciousness is everything. So what does consciousness have to be conscious of? Itself. And what is consciousness being conscious of itself? What's another word for that, guys? I call that self-consciousness. Okay, that's the thing that you are. That's the thing that I am. A self-conscious creature. I'm aware of the world around me, but I'm aware of myself as well. I'm self-conscious. And that's what I'm describing. Consciousness being conscious of itself. So if it's true, this hypothetical that I'm throwing at you, that the truth behind our perceptions, that what's really being reflected there behind our perceptions is God, it's, it's consciousness in whatever form that might be. And I'm also consciousness looking out at the thing, that what I'm doing is sort of looking in a mirror. I'm, I'm being self-aware. And I have a deep suspicion that that is what the, the act of creation is. That's what the Big Bang is. That's what the beginning is. It's self-consciousness somehow. And we'll get into that. We'll get into that more. Before we do, though, I want to talk about experience a little bit more because we've been discussing how it's, it might be possible that all of our experiences are happening in our mind, that the, that the world, that the cosmos, everything happening, everything that is somehow only exists as a part of our experience because we don't have any way of making sense of it otherwise. You know, if there weren't conscious creatures in the cosmos, would there even be a cosmos? Well, I don't know. But even if there were one, there would be, there would be nothing there to acknowledge it. There would be nothing there to recognize it. There would be nothing there to point to it and say that is, because there is no conscious creature there to observe it. So the question of whether it exists without a conscious observer is a fucking good question. Maybe it doesn't exist. All right, so before we can talk about this anymore, I want to talk about experience because, and this is good, you know, we talked about Jordan Peterson a little while ago, and, you know, he is a psychologist, and he talks about an idea that comes from psychology. It's, it's called projection. So many of you have probably heard that. You're, don't, don't project on me. You're projecting on me, that sort of thing. What does that mean, projection? Um, well, in, in common parlance, we use that word um, you know, in, in the context of, let's say, uh, let's say a, uh, a, a husband and wife are having a fight and the husband says to the wife, you know, I, I think you're, you know, unfaithful to me and I'm all up in arms and, and upset about that. And the reason that I, that I'm so focused on it is because I'm unfaithful to you. And I, in the back of my mind, I'm worried about that. So I'm, I'm putting that on you so that I have uh, an opportunity to, to talk about it. So I have an opportunity to um, sort of um, uh, put my concerns and fears on some other human being. That's what projection is used kind of in common, in common parlance. But in psychology, it's really deeper than that. And the way Dr. Peterson describes that is that it's a prerequisite for experience at all. And he, and he talks about this like if you if you um, walk by a stranger on the street, that the experience you have of the person you're seeing that you know nothing about that's walking past you on the street, that it's only possible for you to have that perception if you if you already have um, a 
if you already have like a placeholder in your mind for something unknown so or someone unknown so you you may have to assume things about the the stranger that's walking by you in some weird way just to be able to have an experience of her at all just just to be able to acknowledge that she's walking by you i know it's kind of weird but i'll i'll put it i'll put it differently um uh, so, so Dr. Peterson says that you, you have you have something pre-existing in your psyche that you can map onto, that you can map onto, and that he describes more deeply when he's talking about a um, another psychologist, a guy named named E. N. Sokolov. So he he's got a he's got a um, he likes the. Uh, the the Russians quite a lot, so he spent Jordan Peterson spent a lot of time studying the communism in the Soviet Union. So he's always got, um, you know, uh, the art in his house, let's say, or the artists that he references. A lot of times they're Soviet or Russian. Um, this guy's no exception. So Sokolov, um, Sokolov, he he discovered something that nobody knew existed, and. I don't know that it's got enough attention because the first time I heard about it was from Dr. Peterson. Um, but he, it's something that he, that he calls the orienting reflex. So he did a bunch of, um, a bunch of experiments. And what he found is that when, when people encounter something that they've never encountered before, so we might call that the unknown, or we might say something novel. And I think that's what he would say. That when we, exp- when we encounter something like that, that we've never encountered before, that we have an unconditioned reaction to that. That w- what he says is that the unknown, it triggers an unconditioned stimulus. So that's what it is. It does something to your psyche, um, even though you've never experienced it before. So there's something for it to map onto that's already there in your brain, even though you've never encountered that thing before. So he calls it the orienting reflex. Um, and it's and something like like a fight or flight. It's something like an exploratory reaction. So it's not just any reflex or 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 reaction. It's a very specific kind that when you encounter the unknown, that two things happen. You want to evaluate um, the danger that it might have if you need to run from it. You also want to evaluate the benefits or value that might be there hidden in in this new opportunity, and that you have both of these things going on. Every time you encounter something you've never encountered before, so it's a it's a strange idea because it's something that's inbuilt. You know, we're like we're born and we already have this thing. It's so it's something like an instinct. And we talked about this before uh, in a different way, where I asked uh, on the last uh, podcast, the last last solo podcast, I asked you guys to imagine the unknown part of yourself. So you can try to get an idea of what I mean when I, when I talk about the unconscious. And I'm asking you, do you know where your interests come from? Or your, or your disgusts, the things that make you disgusted that you, that you, that you pull away from. Where, where does that come from? Did you decide arbitrarily? Did you decide this is something I'm going to like or not like? I don't think so. Never happened to me that way. Or, or where do your dreams come from? Those sorts of things. That, that there are things happening that are only sort of vaguely connected to your awareness that are happening within you all the time. And I think your, your instincts fall in that same ballpark. 
you know, these are things that, um, whether we're talking about this orienting reflex or any other instincts, it's not clear where they come from because it sort of seems like we're born with them. So you guys may have heard of examples like, um, like if you put a, like a newborn baby in a swimming pool, so like, like women have like water births and things like that for the same reason, um, that a, 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 it's not really dangerous to the, to the infant, that the infant somehow knows how to float and to roll over on its back. And there's videos online you can see it's a dangerous thing, and I would never, I would never attempt the experiment, but it's something that's baffling, that a baby just out of the womb with no life experience whatsoever um, knows how to preserve its life in the water. Um, another example is, um, well, the, the, the suckling and the grasping motions that a baby has that they're doing, you know, to, to feed or whatever, that, that they have little, little, um, actions that are instinctual that they're doing and, and from right out of the box, right out of the womb. And every time they do that, they're bringing information in. They're, they're learning the world. They're mapping the world. And they never, they never had to do that before. They just know how to do it. Um, a couple of other, other examples that are good are, did you know that, that, uh, rats, um, a brand new, you know, baby rat that's never seen a cat before, uh, will run like crazy, um, out of fear if it smells the odor of a cat. It's never seen a cat before ever, but it smells one and it goes completely bananas or even better, a baby chicken, I can't remember where I saw this, but a baby chicken, um, if you if you if it sees the shadow of a hawk flying over top, that it will run and hide. Uh, it will even do that if you cut out like a cardboard cutout of a hawk and you have it sort of pulled on a string above the chicken coop. The little chicks will go crazy trying to hide. But you can do a cardboard cutout of a goose or a duck, or any other non-threatening bird, and they are not worried about that at all. They will not respond to that. So the point is that when we're talking about instincts, we're talking about things that are built into you, they're part of you from the very beginning. And how you explain something like that, to me, is, is as baffling as trying to explain where your interests come from or where your idea, your creative ideas come from or where your dreams come from. There's not an explanation in, in the world for that. You will hear people talk about uh, things like epigenetics. And this is something that's becoming more and more, more and more popular uh, in the scientific community. And the idea is that you can pass along um, traits that you, uh, that you developed um, while you were alive. So not traits that were sort of built into your DNA somehow, but, but ways in which you changed your, you know, changed yourself or your DNA, maybe that you can pass those along, uh, to other generations as well. And so it's not really well understood. Um, in the old days, like in the Darwin days, um, there was a big argument about this and less science behind it. So there was a guy, a French guy named Lamarck, and he's the guy that said, you know, this is a typical example. I don't know if he ever actually said this, but that a giraffe's neck is long because for years and years and years and years and years and generations and generations that they had to stretch their necks to reach the leaves and the trees. So the more time they spent stretching their necks and practicing the neck stretching, the longer their offspring's necks became. And that's something that Darwin did not agree with and most of science um, disagreed with. 
since the time of Lamarck all the way to the last 50 years. And now we're starting to change our minds about that. This is what epigenetics is all about. So very, very interesting stuff. But the, the point is that there's all sorts of things going on behind the scenes um, that, w- that we're unaware of. And all of that stuff to me is the same type of mystery. So let's go back to the idea about projection here for a second. So the idea is um, that psychologically we do have to project. And it seems like this idea, this ability of projecting is one of these things. We don't have to learn it. We're born with it. We can simply project the moment we come out of the womb. We're able to do it. Maybe even we're doing that before we're born. Maybe we're doing that when we're still, you know, a fetus. I don't know. Uh, But it's one of these instincts or something that we don't have a lot of explanation for. Um, so we do have to have this idea, this this capability of projecting in order to have experiences. Um, so so I, I don't know how I can avoid um, putting that same type of a um, that that same type of understanding um, from the way that my life seems. If I, if I'm projecting things in the world that I'm, that I'm experiencing every time something new comes, comes into my experience, I'm projecting that. And then I, then I'm able to have some sort of interaction with it and then fill in the details. I can sort of map the meaning of that object onto this placeholder, this projection, whatever that means. It's like something that exists only in my psyche and it's there, it's there to kind of bridge the gap between the known and the unknown. So I don't know how I can say that about myself and not say that about God. And this gets a little bit hard because I'm talking about like myself as though I'm consciousness with a lowercase c and God, somehow that's consciousness with an uppercase c, something like that. Um, but I don't know how it's possible that, that the world exists that way for me and not also for consciousness with a capital C. The idea here is that I'm projecting in order to have experiences whatever that projection is, whatever that means. But maybe that's what God is doing. That's what being somehow is. It's a projection from God. Uh, so we'll talk more about that, but I, I, I do think that there's something connected there, the idea that I'm projecting my experiences and God is projecting being, that somehow those things are like a mirror of each other, that there's some part of that that is fractal, and I said we talked about that in the psychedelics episode, and we'll talk about it more. Is that there is some some thing? It's usually visual, some image that comes along with the religious experience. That's fractal. That's something that shows you patterns repeating within themselves, you know, uh, without end. The same pattern repeating um, within and without, um, and it never ends. Like I, I remember um, when I was a kid growing up, my uh, my grandma, she had a um, she had a bathroom where it was a standard kind of mirror and sink situation, and then right behind it was this little nook. It was like a little cutout, um, and there were mirrors on all three sides of the cutout, so you could stand in uh, in the middle, let's say, and you could see y- your reflection on both sides of you, and you could see it right in front of you. But the actual sink and mirror, they're right behind you, also. So really, what you have are mirrors on all four sides. 
And when you look into the mirror, you see yourself and yourself and yourself and yourself and yourself. And it just continues on infinitely. You see, you see stacks of yourself behind you, in front of you, to the right, to the left, everywhere you look is yourself as far as you can see. And that in, in this sort of image, this is what comes to my mind, that you are yourself within yourself within yourself. And that seems to be what, that seems to be what self-consciousness is. It's consciousness within consciousness within consciousness within consciousness over and over and over without end. And this brings to mind this fractal image, this sort of feedback loop fractal image that you see in religious art, you see in people who describe a mystic experience or psychedelic experience, that there's some part of this idea, this, this, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up in this package of self-consciousness, like consciousness reflecting back on itself but that that type of a thing you see in the images in religion and in mystical uh, experience. All right, so I know that was that was a difficult uh, difficult thing to push through, and we will we will clarify that um, again, you know, in, in the future as much as we can. But I don't want to overwhelm you guys with too much all at once. Um, but I am getting towards the end of what I wanted to talk about, so I want to talk. Um, about some philosophers um, that have, I think we can kind of navigate these waters by going through a couple of quotes from philosophers that have talked extensively about God and about ontology. So ontology is a type of uh, a branch of philosophy that talks about um, that talks about creation, that talks about reality, that why is why is reality, why does it exist, why is it here, why is it the way it is. Um, so that, that, that's, these are the types of philosophers that I have in mind. I always gravitated towards them, by the way, for the same reason that, that I mentioned that I always had a deep interest in religion. So, so any philosopher that's talking about creation, the beginning of time, uh, that sort of thing, immediately I, I, I tie that together with the idea of God and I want to know what they have to say on, on the idea. Um, and just to, to let you in on that kind of part of my own perspective, is that when I think about God, and that, and I want to talk about this more in later podcasts, it's my idea of God has changed a lot over the years, but I have always um, held on to the idea that creation, that the idea that the world was was created or that the world exists at all, that that thing is crucial to understanding what God is. So, um, again, we'll spend more time on that in the future, but I want to talk through some philosophers. And where I want to begin is with Martin Heidegger. Uh, Martin Heidegger is an interesting character. You know, he lived, uh, he lived from the late 1800s all the way through the 1970s. Um, so he lived through an interesting part of history. He was German. Um, as far as I understand, Heidegger does have some... Um, does have some connection to national socialism and the Nazis, but I don't believe that was uh, his political persuasion or uh, f- his philosophy. I think it was sort of ad- adopted or borrowed from the same way that that they borrowed from Nietzsche. So you guys may have heard that before the whole the whole God is dead thing, the whole Ubermensch or Superman thing that the Nazis used to um, to talk about their and push their uh, you know racial uh, agenda. Let's say. Oh, that so that stuff was borrowed from Nietzsche. Nietzsche had no part of that. You know, he would have disagreed with that on all sorts of grounds. Um, so I, I tell you that about Heidegger because I think it's interesting. But he he talked. Uh, Heidegger is a, is a very difficult 
guy to read, uh, but I think it's worth it. The juice is worth the squeeze. Um, and I'll, I'll just I'll start with this quote by Heidegger. He says, "When we ask what is being, we stand in an understanding of the is, without being able to determine conceptually what the is means." So he's saying, when we ask the question, what is being, that we're using the word is, and we, we naturally understand what that means, but that's the same question that we're asking. When I say, what is being, I somehow understand what is means, even though the things that are, what is, is being. So here I'm asking the question, trying to figure out what being is, and I can't even ask the question without admitting that I already know what being is. When I say is, that's what I'm talking about. So this is just a quick sentence, and it completely revolutionizes the way you, the way you can you know, perceive the world. That I, it's impossible for me to ask the question, what is being, without already sort of admitting that I not only know what it means, uh, but it's, it's such a deep part of existence in, in my experience that I, that I, I, I sort of take it for granted to such a degree I can't even explain it to you. And so the interesting thing here about Heidegger is when he says this, um, he's he's talking about a, a phrase that he calls uh, Dasein. Dasein. That's a German word, but what what it what it basically means, and he uses that word to talk about conscious creatures like you and I is he says that what we are is beings in being. That you can't separate out the things that exist in the world from the world itself. So we are beings in being. And there's no way to understand what a be, what beings are without the idea of being. So that they're one in the, somehow they're one and the same thing. The beings in the world and the world itself that somehow they're the same thing in this weird, hard-to-describe way. And he calls that Dasein. All right, so from Heidegger, I want to take a pit stop at a guy named Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza. Um, Kyle and I are going to talk about him um, on our next Together podcast, which will be coming out on Sunday. Um, so we're, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to steal too much of my thunder from Spinoza, but he was a little earlier in the 1600s, and Spinoza said this. He said, whatever is, is God. And I love that. I think those two quotes, they go so well together as far as I'm concerned, that when Heidegger says, I can't ask the question, what is being, without already understanding what being is, because I am myself inseparable from being. I'm a being in being. Okay, and then Spinoza comes around and says, whatever is, is in God. So here we have an idea that being is God. And again, we talked about that from the perspective of consciousness, that all things that exist, exist in conscious experience, in my consciousness, let's say. And whatever is, in this case consciousness, is God. That's what I'm getting at. So while we're talking about God, I want, to, I want to mention the Bible for a second because the Bible talks about God in a lot of different ways and uses a lot of different words and names. But one of the best and my favorite in the Bible is where God is described as I am. God is described as I am. What is God? I am. That's the answer to that question. 
on the surface, I mean, I got goosebumps right now saying that. That on the surface, when I say that, I, I, I also am, right? So when I say, what is God? I am. Well, I also am. I'm sitting here thinking, I, I am too. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm God? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things that my, um, you know, I, I'm a little bit too humble to kind of say that without cringing. Um, but I'm more and more convinced of that all the time. And I don't mean myself personally, but I do mean that there is no distinction between being the world that we know and exist in and non-being the thing that, that is what makes being possible. So I'm going to call that God. So I have a really hard time and a harder and harder time all the time denying the idea that being and non-being are one thing, that, that God and you and me and everyone listening to this are one and the same thing. Um, we don't experience it that way, not exactly, but it's hard to deny, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of keep pushing through here. So when God, when, when God is described as I am, to me, what that means is a couple of things. You know, I is a self-reference. When I say I, I'm talking about myself. I'm making a statement that says I, I exist, and I'm the one that gets to say that I exist. And am is, is, an, is another word for being. The th- you know, things that are, are being. So again, I'll, I'll move on from the Bible because I want to talk about, I want to talk about it, a couple other people. Um, Hegel is one that comes to my mind as well. And, and this, this Hegel would have been a contemporary of, of Heidegger, but a little earlier. And I'm going to have to paraphrase a little bit, and then I'll, I'll give you a quote. But, but Hegel says this. He says that when you say something like, I am, that you're making yourself the object of your own subject. So like, you know, just, just to give you another example, I'm sitting here at a desk, I'm looking at a keyboard, and that keyboard is an object. And I'm the subject who's observing the keyboard. So I'm the subject, it's the object. This is the way that we experience the world as subject and object. What he's saying is when you say something like I am, that you become yourself the object of your own subject. You're, you have the ability to put yourself outside of yourself somehow. Kind of like that image of myself looking at all the mirrors I was telling you. We, we have the ability of stepping outside of ourselves uh, to be the, uh, the observer that is, that's observing ourself, that's acknowledging our own existence. When I say I am, that's what I'm doing. So, so you're simultaneously inside yourself and outside yourself. Now, I, I feel like that goes hand in hand with this idea of self-consciousness. That, that's, that seems to be what that is. You know, consciousness observing consciousness, consciousness being conscious of itself. When I say I am, that's what I'm doing. And that's what God is, according to the Bible. All right, so the quote, the quote that Heidegger uh, says that goes along with this is he says that it has self-existence only in the self-existence of the other. So when you're, when you're um, thinking about yourself, when you ask that question, I am, and you become subject and object at the same time, that the subject has existence only in the existence of the object and vice versa. What does that mean? It kind of means that we're self-contained somehow, that our, that, that our reality is self-contained within our consciousness. 
And the, and the last thing, the thing I want to end on is another thing that, um, that I got from Jordan Peterson because I had never heard of this guy named Jean Piaget before, uh, before my encounter with Jordan Peterson. So Jean Piaget was a developmental psychologist. He studied children. And one of the things he, he did that, that Dr. Peterson liked so much was he studied games and how kids play together and how that evolves as they get older. And he has all kinds of interesting observations and things to say based on that. But maybe the most interesting is going to tie into this exactly. Um, he says this, he, and by the way, John Piaget lived, um, you know, even past high degree. He lived, he lived in 1980, so he was a relatively modern, uh, modern guy. He was also Swiss, and uh, so was Carl Jung, by the way, and so am I. And I'm telling you that only because I'm pretending to be proud of that for, for the moment. Um, but anyway, John Piaget says this. He says, he says experience. I think he might use the word knowledge, but let's say experience doesn't begin in the eye. It does not begin in the object. It begins in the interaction. Then is a reciprocal and simultaneous construction of the subject on one hand and the object on the other. So the hair is standing up on my arms again um, because that statement is in the context of what we just talked about, is one of the dramatic, most dramatic things you could say. What I'm saying here is, with this whole idea of self-consciousness and being, is that the subject and the object are created together. So imagine, imagine that consciousness observes itself. Consciousness is self-conscious. When that happens, when it experiences itself in that way, the object, the me, the Chris sitting at this table, is born in that moment. At the same moment, the keyboard I'm looking at, subject and object together, that the experience is, again, if consciousness is the reality behind my perceptions, then every experience I'm having is an experience of consciousness. And I'll put that in another way. Every experience is an experience of God. And so... Being and non-being, or, or you know, the world and God, they're created simultaneously. That their existence relies on one another. So being doesn't exist without non-being, and non-being doesn't exist without being. That the interaction between those two creates everything that there is. That whole object-subject thing that constitutes our experience, that constitutes everything we think is real, and everything that everyone who's ever existed has perceived is real, that that comes from the interaction of consciousness with consciousness, of consciousness with itself. So how does that challenge your ideas about God? You know, a lot of times people will say things, and when we had that uh, that podcast with Sam the other day, um, he did a little bit of this himself, where he was he has this idea in his mind um, that he doesn't like about about the way people perceive God, and he puts a stamp on that that says I disapprove because of the way that it's conceptualized. You know, is God supposed to be this supernatural thing that's floating on a cloud in this place called heaven that we that we can't experience? That's um, divvying out judgment to everybody and causing everything to happen the way it does, including the earthquakes and the bus crashes and all the terrible things and the, the you know, the disease and the death and the suffering. Is, is, that, is that what God is? If you, if you think so, 
then I don't disagree with Sam. I don't disagree with people who, who reject that idea. But if you think of God instead as whatever it is that makes existence possible, and when you consider that that thing that I'm going to call consciousness is the same thing that you are listening to this right now, how does that change the way you think about God? And if this is true, and we somehow are God, what does that say about who we are, what we do, and the importance of our lives, our actions, our decisions, our interactions with one another? I wonder. How about you?